Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the show, Peruvian economist Hernando de Soto and the economics of land rights. The FT's chief investment commentator and my colleague, John Authors, sits down with Mr. De Soto to discuss his work documenting property rights in developing countries and his lofty goal is to create a global property rights registry using blockchain technology. John joins me now in the studio. John, who is Hernando de Soto? Well, Hernando de Soto is a very famous and very controversial uh, economist. Uh, as you said, he's very, very closely attached to uh, to uh, development economics and to a notion of uh, development economics which uh, some would call neoliberal or conservative. He very much thinks that it's when uh, you give people a stake in the society, when you give them uh, the opportunity to trade, that capitalism can work for them. We'll talk about this a lot more in the interview, but that's uh, that has been his role for some decades now, going around the world evangelizing for the notion that it's when you give people a stake through recognizing the rights to what property they have, that capitalism can begin to work for them. And just before we get to your interview, can you set up for us the new venture that he's formed with the also somewhat controversial chief executive of Overstock, that's Patrick Byrne? The idea, uh, and uh, Patrick Byrne is a a very controversial but very colorful figure in the, the world of cryptocurrencies these days. The idea is that by using the blockchain technology, which under cryptocurrencies the important points here are that it's distributed that there isn't one central registry that somebody can start fooling around with and that it's immutable once you've put it onto a blockchain you can register objections to it but you can't change the original entry those appear to be the critical elements in what they're trying to do which is a fascinating and anthropological project we'll hear a lot about. They think that they can use the blockchain in a superior way to get all these traditional land rights out there on the register and recognized in a matter of years. All right. Well, fascinating conversation ahead. And we'll also you'll also get to the sort of philosophical influences that formed De Soto's thinking. So here's John's conversation with economist Hernando De Soto. Fernando de Soto, thank you very much for joining us here in the uh, FT's studio in New York. Now, you're very famous for your theories on the importance of property rights, importance of land rights, and how they can help combat poverty and allow for growth. Let's start by finding out where did those ideas come from? Where, Where did the importance of property rights first suggest itself to you? I think it came from uh, one experience on the ground since I was a a Peruvian boy educated outside of Peru because my parents were exiled from Peru. One of the first things I wanted to do as I wanted to see for myself what it was like to be Peruvian upon returning to Peru as a university student, I went uh, to work uh, both in the Amazon and woodcutting mill, and then I went to work in a hotel for about three months, uh, opening doors, washing bathrooms, 
and going to the countryside, and I saw that everybody was very much uh, attached to their land and their assets, and that uh, they spent uh, a lot of time on that issue. Then uh, in Arequipa, where I come from, uh, there's a lot of lawyers, and I once uh, said something nasty about too many lawyers in town, and they said the reason we're more prosperous than the Cusqueños and we own the lands in Punas because we've discovered that the way that you avoid conflict among uh, among humans or Arequipeños is not through the knife, as these other guys down south do. We do it through law. So then I, that sort of brought me to the idea, not that there was property or not property, that property was what it was. There was a social contract. Mm. But how you documented and settled disputes was important. Intellectually, one, it was reading Adam Smith while I had hepatitis at the age of 21. So I had to stay 21 days uh, still, and somebody gave me the book, and I thought that was very interesting. Uh, then Marx, but not of explicitly when he talked about property, because he didn't realize, I think, the value of the issue in human conflict. But he, what he did say is that basically you are talking about uh, resources and you are talking about commodities. So that was uh, an issue there. And then uh, as I walked throughout the world, seeing that uh, poor people generally lost theirs and rich people took it. Now, this is a very interesting melange because most of the people listening to this will be thinking, well, Adam Smith is the godfather of capitalism and Marx is the godfather, the intellectual father of communism and never the twain shall meet. Uh, And yet you're saying that both of them gave you insights as a young man that fed into your own theory of how, uh, how we can combat poverty. Is there actually something more in common than people realize between a Marxist idea and uh, an Adam Smith uh, or John Locke enlightenment idea of of where property rights come from, where, where, where people's rights come from? I think so. At some level, that is obviously not of concern that much to the West today, but is very uh, prevalent in my part of the world, in the third world of the former Soviet Union. And it comes from this, is that when I started trying to look at the issue of rights, of all sorts of rights, not just uh, land rights, uh, just people obviously agree on certain things and kill themselves in the process of trying to reach an agreement, but they do do end up reaching an agreement. When I started uh, trying to get at the issue of governance, you know, in Peru and uh, elsewhere, and concretely land simply because it's something you could touch, you can see it's not uh, it's not there. You found that when uh, you went to the lawyers' offices, the problem was overlapping boundaries. But when you go to the countryside in Peru, there is no such thing as a piece of land like a rug overlapping another piece of land. There, the fences are very clear and very precise, whether they're conformed of trees, whether they're conformed of bushes, or they're conformed of water. So in reality, when you get down there, there is no overlapping. Nine-tenths of the law is possession, the way it used to be Mm. in the UK, and that's where you start off from. So I said, well, reality is one thing, and then when intellectuals and lawyers get to it, and they get too precise, they sort of uh, aren't able to keep up with with reality. That's why I was telling you before that I was... uh, uh, remembering Leszek Kalakowski, the um, Polish intellectual 
who used to say when they asked him to define himself, he said, well, I'm a socialist conservative libertarian. Why? Because there's a little bit of everything in there. These are basically different ways I think we have of dealing with a tremendous phenomenon that is ongoing, no matter how uh, the technological steps uh, progress, which is called the Industrial Revolution. How do we try and live all together on a large scale among neighbors that you shall never know personally? Okay, and Marx and Engels and Locke and Smith would all agree that you can't just take away somebody's labor and get them to work for you for for free. There has to be some degree of uh, of right involved in that transaction as a country or an economy moves on to an industrial scale. Yes, provided that you've reached the level of development that these Europeans had in the 19th century where you could actually distinguish a proletarian from a capitalist. That's much harder in my country today than in much of the third world where people are a little bit of both, where they, they're still at the level of cottage industries. 90% of all Peruvian enterprises are unipersonales, which means cottage industries. And at that moment, well, you do a little job there, you own a little bit of this, and sometimes you employ yourself as labor. But it's not clear-cut. And you know who's interesting to read mm. for this? It's the State of the Union speeches of Abraham Lincoln where he uh, relates to a certain point the result of his epistolar exchanges with Karl Marx and says to the South, who pretends to be agricultural, that uh, we're not like the Europeans, which are clearly demarcated in two classes. We're a little bit of everything at this stage. I would identify with that today in the 21st century in my part of the world. And Lincoln and Marx had a correspondence with each other. Check the ages. Okay, I did not know that. That's... That does sound like something to check out. I'll tell you how you get to it. You don't become rigorous. You just sort of surf the Internet, and then all of a sudden you come upon it. From a footnote to another footnote. So moving on from Lincoln, can we start talking in a little more practical terms about Peru? Obviously a, a country with a very clearly stratified society and culture, and one where you were growing up that fell into the grip of a very scary insurgency by the, the uh, Sendero Luminoso, the, uh, the Shining Path, who were generally regarded in shorthand as Maoists. Now, how did your ideas about property rights, how did they help in taking on what at one point was an extremely ruthless and violent uh, insurgency? Well, when I came to back to live in Peru in uh, the early 80s, I found out that uh, all the ambitions I had as an entrepreneur, shall we say, at that time, I had run Switzerland's largest engineering company, were thwarted because the country was at war. And so if you wanted to be a citizen and get in the nucleus of where uh, the problems were and where the action was, you had to face the, the shining path. And in the process of going back to where I had worked as a young man in hotels and in the fields, I found out that, uh, and especially because uh, the farmers came to visit us, because I had just written the book, The Other Path, El Otro Sendero, came up and started talking about all the time about land certificates. And that was what it was all about. These were very simple people. The, The intellectuals were the shining path. The people that fought on the ground against the shining path were the farmers who were a rural proletariat. But of this rural proletariat, all it talked about 
was how it had rebelled against the Shining Path originally because they attempted against their private property. I didn't expect to hear that from them. They didn't call it private, by the way, just call it family, individual, or whatever. That's when I, all of a sudden, I started getting hold of documents with the ledgers and with the seals of the Shining Path, which I have published. And that's when I decided this seems to be the core issue. Let's try now and get government to change its mind about whether you should tamper with the property system because it seems to be at the heart of the war. So let's make sure we understand all the terms we're talking about here. We're in the foothills of of the Andes. You have very much a peasant economy, it's still fair to say, right? There are ledgers that exist that do confer rights on particular parts of property to families, but there are also attempts by the Shining Path, the Senderistas, to create new titles to property, their, their own separate version of who owns what. Is, is that right? Yes, they try and do that at the beginning and fail because the farmers don't like them tampering with the ledgers. The ledgers are social contracts which the farmers had arrived to uh, many years before. And so the Shining Path, which begins trying to communize everything mm. and put it under a collective system, which they can also tax, of course, for practical reasons, are defeated sorely by ni- 1984. They have to evacuate a great part of Ayacucho. They come back in 85 with a different strategy, which is basically to protect private property, agree with the people who have got it, and specially charge a tax or a fee for protection to those who grow coca intended to feed the cartels of Colombia so they can fabricate uh, cocaine. So they started out like Mao, and then in their second coming, they were more like... Deng Xiaoping. Uh, <laughs> or... Well, like Deng Xiaoping, I, I, I was thinking more of Marlon Brando and The Godfather. The, 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 this is more like a yes. criminal enterprise. Good, good. I like the idea of Mar- 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 Marlon Brando and, and bully politics and this kind of thing, yes. So at that point, presumably that this this is with the cover. This obviously sounds very similar to what the Taliban did in uh, Afghanistan or with poppies and uh, also ISIS with oil production that... that in those cases, there was very much of a cloaking of religion around what they were doing. Is there any sense in which you know, there, there's obviously passionate sense of indigenous uh, identity? I, I take it most of the people they were, they were dealing with were speaking Quechua, the indigenous language, rather than Spanish. Is there a sense in which they were trying to hold on to culture as being more important than property rights at this point? That's a very interesting question and observation. Uh, We all thought about it because uh, a lot of people, especially on the extreme left of Peru, wrote many articles on the fact that this was nothing else than uh, the coming back of Incarri. It's a phenomenon in Peru. It's a mythical phenomenon, but it's very much alive in the villages that when uh, their civilization was uh, destroyed or actually uh, dominated by the Spanish civilization, and one of the things that they had done is beheaded the Inca, which is the leader of uh, the last empire that dominated most of Peru and its neighboring countries. Uh, The myth is that every time we have an earthquake in Peru, it's the body that is somewhere in Guayaquil that is trying to join the head which is somewhere close to Tacna, and that's what causes the, uh, the, uh, the earthquakes. Well, the idea is that everybody thought that this was the indigenous insurgents. And then 
they catch Abimael Guzman when we've chased him out of the countryside, and he then ded- dedicates himself to Algerian-type car bombings in uh, Lima, changes a complete strategy, has reduced his army to practically nothing, and uh, he's captured, and when he's exhibited to the press, he's, if you remember, in a, a cage, a man-sized cage. In a striped cage. shirt in a, in in a, a cage. Uh, yes. That's right. The cage has the stripes going down, and he's in a, a Beagle Boy uniform where the stripes are going from left to right with a number, and everybody's expecting him to talk about the indigenous insurgents, but he talks like a Chinese communist. He says the 26th anniversary of the 30th revolution, uh, edict number 145, has said that the party will do this, and it turns out that that's not his ambition. His ambition is to become what he calls the fourth sword of Marxism, and he wants his photograph placed next to Mao and Marx and Lenin. There was very little or nothing whatsoever of the indigenous situation of Peruvian Quechuas. So ultimately, how did the role of um, establishing ledgers, establishing property rights, help beat him then? Ultimately, it's about establishing the rights of uh, those people in the Andean foothills to their own property, to their own... This was the logical thing to do. The real problem here was, one, the Americans, which, of course, you were talking about coca land, and you said, what are you going to do, try and title coca fields? And the reply was, yes, but do you want to win a war or not? And if you identify the coca fields, you will also identify the coca growers. So you can do all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, uh, Brits know that you have to make a deal with the Gorkas if you want to win a war. Right. And you, if you're fighting Vietnam, you've got to have the Montagnals. Mm. This is all practical. So the first part of the plan was talk the Americans into it, in which I received a lot of help from the White House. Uh, people like Dick Cheney, uh, people like Ben Scowcroft, like Senator Phil Graham, all came in and weighed in and understood what was going on. And then the next thing you had to do was the Peruvian oligarchy, which likes the law as it is because that's what they're accustomed to. And all the professions, the notary publics, the lawyers who like it as it is. But when you come in and say, well, look, the issue is about uh, property or about who owns what, and they've got the ledgers, and we should go buy their ledgers because they're actually done according to law. What we have to do is displace the shining path. Uh, and then uh, I remember in, airpl- in an airplane, we, mm. we pamphleted the Peruvian jungle and got replies of the ledgers nearly immediately. And in three months, we put the ledgers together, which were the social contracts among the people, identified their leaders, put them in two Hercules planes to Lima, made a deal at the government palace, and simply said, we are now going to protect your assets, which will allow us to do the following thing. One, get you on our side. Second, nobody's going to beat you up because now you're going to have some kind of an official document. And third, uh, the Peruvian army can now arm you so as to form the most powerful army that has ever happened in Peru, which is to the 30,000 forces that are fighting the Shining Path. We're going to add another uh, roughly 123,000. So military might certainly helped. Where else have you managed to make headway in terms of establishing property rights? And I'm very interested to hear you say that you haven't found that heads of state have been threatened. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the Arab Spring, for example. There was a, there was a sense of that uh, a right to determination and property rights was part of what animated those uh, rebellions 
six years ago, is it really the case that heads of states don't feel threatened by this? And presumably, in, in many cases, they are implicitly exercising rights over somebody else's property and moving in the direction you're asking them to do will involve admitting that they don't have as much power as they uh, currently have. It will involve relinquishing power for them. Well, what we try and indicate, if I can think of uh, an unnamed uh, head of state, but which really affects my discussions Mm. with just about all of them, it begins by indicating that they don't have power. That if you're in Cairo and you take a boat and you want to get to the upper Nile, you're not going to stay in that boat for very long because you don't control that part of the territory. And if you sit down with uh, somebody from the former Soviet Union and you sit down in front of a screen that tells them what's going on in their country, you will see that only one-third or half of the screen lights up. The rest is a dark piece of glass because they don't really know what's going on in there. In terms of Libya, you really don't know what's going on in 80% of the country. So the first thing is they're not that powerful. You make that obvious, and you get the numbers that indicate that. In the case of Egypt, for example, which is the first place that was confrontational, because I was challenged, I remember, by the people who ran the, the, the register, we did a quick survey with a local think tank, at that time, backed up by uh, Gamel Mubarak, the son of the president, who was really... So this is still under Mubarak? That this is under Mubarak. Okay. We did a quick survey with a think tank that they had, a very well-reputed think tank, and we knocked on the doors of a, of a wide variety of homes from Cairo to Alexandria all the way down to the Upper Nile, and the reply was this. Only in 8% of the cases did the person who, according to the records, owned the house open the door. 92% were outside. And in businesses, only 14% of the businesses were actually run by the people in the records. The other 86% were run by people that weren't in there. And when it came to public housing, like Nasser City, Mm -hmm. uh, you took the photographs and the permits to build, and they had authority to build it was, uh, you know, public housing, two stories. Try and go now to Nasser City and find a building that is less than nine stories. That means that the seven top ones are absolutely illegal. So once you demonstrate this, it's, you know, discussion's over in two weeks. That's easy. The next part is you have to deal with the law because you're not dealing with property. The people have decided somehow or other historically that they own this and that, and it's, uh, maybe it, wasn't, it was unfair to the Palestinians, maybe it was unfair to the Jewish, maybe it was unfair to the cops, but that's what you got. That's mm. the situation as is. The question is, how do you conceive strategies whereby these people and their titles you know, get, get included in the system? You know, Think of a casino, and you don't have the chips with which to play the game. How do you give them the chips that represent the capital with which they can start playing the game? And that requires all sorts of strategies. So once when the Mubaraks were out, we said, well, that, that makes us out. I mean, we weren't Mubarakian or anything of the kind. We were just technicians helping a country bring their poor inside. We got called in by the Muslim Brotherhood. And when the Muslim Brotherhood's elections were annulled so they could proceed to the presidential elections, we got called in again and signed a second contract. And then when Sisi came in, they came in again. So what I'm trying, this is an example to simply tell you that the issue is not in the third world what should be done. The two problems that exist are 
One, how do you move quickly enough when you see the consensus being formed and deliver quickly so that what you're talking about hits the front pages of the newspapers. Everybody's convinced that you may have made a few mistakes, but we're ignoring the majority of the people, and this is a big issue, and if we don't, you know, the uh, ISIS will come in or something terrible will happen, or something good will happen. I don't know, but it, it will be violent. That is one issue. And the other issue, the problem is the concept of developed countries, their embassies in those countries, who conceive property rights as the right of whoever had the original title 300 years ago getting it back. And there's no possibility of that. There is no way that you can go back to Peru and say, hey, uh, the Spaniards own this, let's give it to them. Or say, Ima Sumac's great, 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 great grandmother really owes it. You know, possession is nine-tenths of the law, and you've got to move very, very quickly. And then you're going to do injustices, but you're going to do injustices like in New York. You know, probably 10% of all property in New York is in dispute. Well, you settle that through courts, but that shouldn't stop you from doing something about the 90%. Okay. Put in American lawyers, and they'll stop the process. Well, according to legend, the whole island of Manhattan was bought for whatever it was, a few furs and some beads or, or yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, That's yeah. But the practice of it is yes. you can't go back 200 years. You're, you're, you're inviting war. We've migrated. We've blended among ourselves. We've done some terrible things. The enclosures are pretty terrible things. Mm. All right. But, you know, try and get the um, British blue blood to then give it all back. Kind of difficult, I would say. Can't disagree. Let's talk now. For capitalism, You to work, everybody needs to have some chips in the casino, some skin in the game. You also need somebody to rule the game, to, to, to run the game and make sure there are rules. You need institutions so that a market can function is your fascinating new attempt to uh, to build ledgers globally on blockchain with patrick burn of overstock is, is that an attempt to create the institutions to speed up the process and to create an institution that will allow this to to happen so it will allow it to go global yes in personal terms, it involves changing what I traditionally do for doing something different. Uh, originally, uh, I get hired, if you want to, as an NGO to uh, actually produce a reform or the blueprint for a reform. What's going to happen with Overstock is very different. We're not, going, we're not in the reform business or in the nation-building business. We're in the information business. So what we're going to do is simply... Uh, document and get the information by getting the information in standardized terms of which are the different factors in every country, including the le including that which is government land and private property or belongs to foreign investment, but also those which are the majority, which are in the extralegal sector, of what do the ledgers say, number one, mm -hmm. in terms of who owns what. What do the ledgers say in terms of who governs what? Because it's not only a question of property, it's a question of sovereignty. I mean, where you've got the Islamic State, it's not that they own it, they exercise sovereignty over it. They own too much, the people will rebel against them. The idea of our idea is to provide the kind of information which makes the diagnostic of whether it's business or it's reformists in government easier so they know what people really believe in. Because it's not, uh, these are not as a, uh, Professor John Searle would say, uh, speech acts. 
These are document acts. It's actually documented, written, sealed, and according to law. And you're confident that that's true wherever we care to look, sub-Saharan Africa, everywhere within India and so on, that you will indeed be able to, to trace ledgers that have meaning in the local societies that, that they're agreed that who owns which property. The reason I am confident in it is not because I visit every corner of the earth, though I have been in every one of the continents we're talking about. Mm. The reason is I haven't found any evidence to the contrary. And when I sit with the people who actually look at these things, take care of these things, whether it be government, even university, and I say, these ledgers exist. I've seen this kind of building here. Uh, I haven't been defeated. Let me give you an example. We were invited by Melisenawi, the former head of state of uh, Ethiopia, who uh, at one moment when he somebody in the United States that was very favorable to us had told him, you know, you should read DeSoto's books, this and the other. And he said, I'm a Marxist. I don't need to do that. But he ended up calling me. And uh, I realized I was going to be a tough sell. So I started bringing a marketing, call it a marketing uh, program in place, which is, first of all, Peruvians would come in, seven. About 14 days before I was to meet Melizanawi, who was an intellectual, London School of Economics, I believe, and said, let's debate it. Let's debate your book. So he invited me for four, for four hours. And when I walked into, there are witnesses to this, by the way, so I walked into the government palace and sat down with him. He had a secretary next to him, so there were three of us. And then he raised his eyebrow. He had a very linenous look about him. He had the goatee and the bald. And he looked at me, raised one eyebrow and said, well, you know, speak your piece. I said, look, before we do anything, because I know something about politics as well, I said, I come bearing gifts. So I have this for you. He says, oh. So I handed him over a box. And he said, do I open it? I said, well, according to protocol, I'm afraid you must because that's what you do. I said, all right. So he knew that the game was on. He opened the box, and there were a lot of sort of brown papers on it. And he said, what are these? And he said, these are the titles of the people that surround your government palace that have been titled by forces alien to you. And boom, we got the contract. I do that wherever I go. In other words, once you do that, the head of state goes around, calls in his ministers, calls in his intellectuals, calls anybody, and nobody says anything to the contrary. Right. Now, we might agree that maybe some probably it's there. So what, we, what we've got here is a, I forget what the philosophical world for, for it is, it's a gestalt moment or whatever you mm -hmm. want to. All of a sudden, we're realizing that the people of the world, let's not call it an invisible hand so we don't give too much credit to Adam Smith. Let's call it an unconscious hand. Somehow or other, those people who have been excluded by globalization, they're angry. I mean, there's a lot of anger about globalization, not because it's a bad system, everybody wants to migrate here, but simply because it's unfair that all of these people have chips that don't work in the casino of Evian, and that's where they've been asked to play. That's a wonderful prospect for the future. Now, as I understand it, your project with Patrick Byrne of Overstock using the blockchain is about getting people's chips where people can see them on the blockchain is it really going to be possible mr byrne suggests that it can be this can be done in five years on a global basis can you try briefly to convince me that it's going to be possible in that kind of time how quickly can you really do what you're trying to do here what patrick is talking about 
is that the system uh, is found valid and is helpful to organize knowledge of the two-thirds of the world's population, whichever shall we say are on the green cheese side of the moon, that that's going to be brought in. I don't know if we're going to get them all in because uh, that isn't necessarily the objective. The idea is getting in sufficient parts of all parts of the world so that you know that when communities that are going to be very slow in integrating the global economy, and many of them may not actually like it. I have seen them in Peru. There are people who are collectively organized and are not ready to be recognized as individuals. It doesn't exist. They are a people. They are people who talk to the mountains and talk to the rivers, and they may be, they, they may be elsewhere. But at least what we will have gotten is a recognition in just about every other country that our technology can get us there should those parts that haven't signed in were to be affected and needed our help. And you're going to get there presumably in the same way that you've been getting there before. So we're not talking about just putting things up on the Internet, asking people to come and talk. We're still talking about human beings going in and talking to people in towns and villages how do, how are we going to get all these ledgers in the first place to put on the blockchain? Well, no, we are not going to go in and talk. That is the sacrifice. That is the big decision I had to take over the last four or five months, and let me tell you it was difficult, mm-hmm. which is that the Indiana Jones side, which is like that you like people, right, that you really talk to people, whatever you have of an anthropologist, you're going to drop Okay. You're going to drop. You're going to drop and sacrifice it for information technology. And if we get our networks well set up, other guys get to do the, the traveling uh, that is necessary. But, in fact, you should be able to get them through the Internet. That is number one. So you're a database manager now. You're no longer Harrison That's Ford. it. So the idea here is it's a system. People have decided that anthropology is what they want to see in films, mm. uh, action films, scorpions pyramids and i want to get into the fact that there is war that there is underdevelopment that there's unhappy people with globalization in the west and outside the west and this is by the way there are a lot of re- things here that are very relevant to the west i have been called in by i will not name them secretaries of uh, housing and urban development in the united states that say that well things we're talking about are probably applicable thinking of the border in Mexico, inner cities in the United right. States, and indigenous, uh, indigenous people to about 50 to 70 million Americans. So I want to get this into the big picture. I want to get out of the Indiana Jones as much as it pains me to see that I will be in more anonymous buildings for the, for the rest of uh, my life. Yeah. Well, there, there are worse things. Yes. Let's just <laughs> talk home in quickly on two other things that I think are important. First, you're doing this on the blockchain, which at the moment is incredibly trendy and exciting. What is it about blockchain technology that enables you to do this that wouldn't have been possible or that isn't possible with the Internet as we currently understand it? The Internet has Google, which has categorized and classified Lord knows how much information it has, Wikipedia. Why do you need blockchain rather than the Internet as we know it to do this project? Right. The first thing is that when you do something as new as this, 
you begin realizing that you need the best minds. And like in every profession, you know, it, it looks like uh, there's an army, everybody's in uniform, but some are better than others. And when you start trying to crack the nut, uh, those that are talking blockchain, so far, as far as I've gone, are being the, the best at looking at this problem in innovative ways. That, that is one. You will tell me, ah, but you are looking at the trendy side. I said, yeah, but the trendy side happens to be where the people that I need are. Right. That's number one. Number two, there is this thing of distributed ledgers and the system that's behind it, which is the... Distributed I would ledgers on the blockchain, you mean? The way on the, the blockchain. blockchain is structured. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, I don't plan using it that way. Uh, the way they use it. To me, the distributed ledgers means the possibility of putting a very small mobile apparatus in every community in the world so they can see that what they believe to be true is also now on the world agenda. Nobody's just going to come in and say this belongs to the Spanish conquest or this belongs to uh, to somebody in, in, in a large uh, investment bank abroad. Their case is also there, as as is the case of the large investors. So the distributed ledger is very helpful. The idea at the end is also that every one of these ledgers not only contains information as to who has claims that are different from those that government would assert, though Mm -hmm. private companies are very, very well informed of this, it also has the private company's claims inside. But it also does the other thing, which is it brings together the, uh, shall we say, disconnected or unglobalized ledgers with the globalized ones, and it includes those aspects of the law that give rights to foreign or local investment versus the locals. And they're all sitting there immutably on on the blockchain. So blockchain seems to have converged or brought together all the kinds of specialties that we would need to act, automate, and scale up. Okay. One final question. Blockchain, as we've said, is creating great excitement at the moment. A lot of people backing blockchain have extremely grand ideas about how this is going to change politics, how it's going to change society. It's not so much Ayn Rand or some other idea of a, or Hayek or some libertarian idea. It's almost anarchist in the sense that it means the end of governments and the end of the nation state. Is there any sense, do you think, that, that your project would, might in the end actually lead to further weakening of the, the concept of, of the nation-state, of government? Well, I would be very much against that. I am a believer that central banks have a reason for existing, among other things because, uh, you know, we live in the 19th century in many parts of Peru, and I've seen what happens when you do not have something like an indicator that is believed at a national level. I'm about getting at least the world organized on a nation-based status. So I don't agree with that. I think that the idea that you can now test for truth uh, a record-keeping system Mm. and make it uh, uh, non-fraudulent, which is what I see in blockchain, is a magnificent idea. But what you're talking about is the guys that have introduced ideology into this and who believe that uh, a formula, uh, no matter how precise it is, that goes against uh, existing government is a solution to the rule of law, 
I think it's absolutely crazy. I do not agree with that at all. I think that what happens when you get something new, it is as if you permit me, um, the French at a certain moment said, you know, ce qui se passe avec ces Américains is that they are very, uh, that that's the way they start. It's part of their culture. They're very fattists. They start off by saying, this is it. And then after a while, it's a democratic society. Things are brought down to the practical scale that they deserve. I think for the moment, there's just a lot of hype. And uh, to say that the solution of the world now is a new type of ice cream is just crazy. It's just that it's going to be very helpful. It's a technology. It's a tool. It's no more than a tool. And it depends on whose hands it is, if it works well or if it doesn't work. Dr. De Soto, before you go, do you have a long-form recommendation for our listeners? Well, I've been thinking about that. If there's anything new, I can't think of anything new. I think there's a lot of old stuff which hasn't been read and therefore may be very new in the sense that it'll, mm-hmm. it can be read today in a certain way, as, as when you were saying, when people start ascribing to information, technology, all sorts of magic, which may not be there. I would say all the works of Bertrand Russell that have to do with knowledge by description versus knowledge by acquaintance are extremely relevant to figuring out just how much information technology is relevant. I mean, it's not relevant, it's important, and is not important at the same time. I would be the, have the same uh, sort of recommendation uh, regarding Ludwig Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, I can't think of anything precise, but everything that he had uh, uh, to, to say that refers to the universe being, when asked to describe it in just one clean sentence, he said, it is uh, things in relationship to each other. And to understand that information technology is about building relationships but uh, all it does is just provide another code. It's great, but it's not that sensational. And third, you may want to read Popper when he talks about World 1 and World 2 and World 3. And then when you do that, then you can put information technology uh, in a historical perspective and see that it's wonderful, but it isn't rather much more than a souped-up pencil. That's fascinating. For my recommendation, which has little to do with what we've been just discussing uh, I'd like to recommend The Spider Network by David Enrich which is a book that got shortlisted for the FT Business Book of the Year Award this year uh, it is a, it's a great narrative history of the LIBOR scandal, wonderful blow by blow account you think it is going to be a book about the flaws in the way capital markets have come to work It is a book about that, although I have to say the LIBOR scandal itself compared to uh, many of the things that were happening in the States in the middle of the last decade does come across as very small beer compared to uh, subprime mortgages. By the end of the book, you realise it's also been about the failings of the international justice system. And without spoiling the conclusion, you do end up with quite a uh, shattering lack of faith uh, that justice was done in in the case of Nobelheads. And that's the end of John's interview with Hernando de Soto. Let us know what you think. You can send us an email at alphachat at ft.com. 
please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Not only does it help us improve the show each week, it also helps other people find out about us. Thanks to John for hosting and to Hernando de Soto for coming by the FT. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.